0: Instead, we're right back in Acts. We are in uh, Acts chapter 17, 22 through 34. Acts chapter 17, 22 through 34. This is a very well-known sermon of of Paul. He's giving to... um, idol worshipers in in Athens. It's called Mars Hill. And as I was speaking earlier, I don't actually know why it's called Mars Hill because it's nowhere in here mentions Mars Hill. I assume it has something to do with Mars. No, it's actually because it's just another name for uh, the Aeropagus, which I assume is like nobody actually wants to say that. That's hard to say. Let's just call it Mars Hill, but it's a big hill up on top. All the Athenians and Greeks would go up there. It was a place they liked to discuss and debate religion and philosophy and law. Let's go ahead and read Acts chapter 17, 22 through 34, and then we'll, uh, we'll dive right in here. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all aspects, for while I, was, while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown god. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God If perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked at the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man through whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Diocinus, the Arophagite, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. Let's pray. Dear Father, I thank you for this morning, for the opportunity uh, once again to to gather, to hear your word taught, to fellowship with your believers, to be encouraged through song and prayer, through fellowship with one another. I pray that you'd give us attentiveness, that we'd be encouraged through the example of, of Paul here in his presentation of the gospel to unbelievers, that you would build into us that same passion and desire and equipment to be able to share the gospel well. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the context here, I mean, we remember Paul has moved into Europe. He is moving away kind of further and further from uh, Judaism and a familiarity with Christianity, or at least with Jesus, and moving into this area of there's lots of idols, lots of different kinds of belief and philosophy. Um, now he's made it all the way to Athens. Um, as, as you can see here, like before, Paul's heart is stirred. He's upset by the amount of idol worship and just the, the darkness that he, that he sees in, in Athens, this uh, tremendous religious misalignment. Athens is a city full of religious interest and really this mental ascent to deity, and yet it's, it's deeply dark. It's devoid of the light of the one true God. So Paul, he's identified his, his striking point here, this altar to the unknown God. And uh, this, this passage here, he's really running a clinic on how to share the gospel with people who believe in God and yet are unsaved, with deists. And much of America, and, and particularly this, this Bible belt that we live in, like if Paul were to visit us, he'd probably preach a very similar message. A culture that's surrounded with idolatry, surrounded with really this belief in like, yeah, I believe in a higher power, that there is a God, but I don't know the one true God. I don't worship him truly. I'm not converted. And so I would encourage you to, to really pay attention. This is, this is the message that he would, Paul would preach to you if, you if you're an unbeliever. And it's also a message that can be very relevant as you try and build in your equipment to be able to share the gospel with unbelievers around you. This is relevant. We're surrounded by deists, people that maybe believe in some sort of higher power, but don't believe in God. Not the one true God. Our point this morning is really God is God, the concept of God is not mere intellectual exercise. He is the creator and judge of all men, and it is given to us to repent. God is not a mere intellectual exercise. He is the creator and judge of all men, and it is given to us to repent. Christianity is not a sport, it's salvation. Let's walk through our passage, verse 22. So Paul stood in the midst of the Aropagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. Could seem like a compliment at first. But this is really the first point that Paul's going to enter into his argument, that you're very religious. And that's, that's problematic. I'm not, I'm not applauding you because of your tremendous religion or the amount of religious exercises that you go through. Your religion is, is really worthless. But religion for the Athenians and for, for many of us, oftentimes, it can be a sport or a hobby, something we're really interested in, but we don't let it affect us. We don't let it change who we are. It's just something that we use to entertain ourselves. And so Paul uses that, kind of hooks into that, and moves forward. Verse 23, for while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. I mean, it's it's gotten to the point where it's kind of ridiculous. They've got all these gods, just loads and loads and loads of them. And they're always trying to come up with new ones or identify existing ones. But just to kind of cover their bases in case they've missed something, they're just like for all the gods, or the, the one we don't know, let's just make an altar, cover our bases, let's let's build an altar to an unknown god. The issue here is ignorance. That's what Paul points out, like what, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The, the point is not simply worship. It's not just that you're proclaiming some sort of assent or love for a deity or a God. You need to know, you need to have an assurance, a a deep understanding of what you're worshiping. It's not sufficient to just worship in ignorance. Ignorant worship is, it's problematic. The Athenians are putting worship before knowledge. And so Paul's aiming to correct that perspective. And it's true for us. Like, do, do you worship in knowledge? Do you know what it is you're worshiping? When you Come on Sunday, we think of worship as singing songs and that's certainly part of it. But as you live your life and you say you know God and you want to do what pleases Him, do you actually know what pleases the Lord? Do you know who He is? Do you know what He's like? Do you know what He wants? Or are you trying to worship in ignorance? Ignorant worship is no worship at all. So Paul moves forward. Verse 24, The God who made the world and all things in it, since He is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Like that proclamation alone, we take that for granted as Christians. But this would, this would definitely have sent some ripples through the crowd because to say that there is a God, a single God, who made all things, made heaven and earth, that he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands... Like that's all they had was temples they'd made with their hands as a sort of worship or altar to God. They had this perspective or this idea that God does dwell in temples made with hands, that there are different kinds of God, some that make, some that wage war, some that create, some that destroy. And God is declaring there's, there's just this one. And he made all things. He's the God of heaven and earth. And he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. And it's very fascinating. This is probably the thing that struck me the strongest here, is the Athenians, and many times we, have this perspective that God is looking to get something from us. We're, we're supposed to behave, or to do, or to act, or to build. We're to give to God. But Paul's argument is this paradox, this switch that says it's not it's not us who give to God, but God who gives to us. Read it again. Nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. We are not the givers. God is the giver. God gives to us. God gives us life and breath. He gives us all things. So the Athenians so consumed with their idol worship, their ignorant worship, they're just, I don't know what we're supposed to give, I don't know who we're supposed to give to, but we're just give, give, give. God says, no, it's, it's the opposite. God is the, the giver. God gives, and men receive. And it's orienting around this idea of, again, idols, is what. It, what is an idol? It's not, a, it's not a true God. It's not something... This is kind of Paul's whole argument is, look at the God that I'm presenting to you and then look at all the idols that you worship. What's the fundamental difference? It's that you make your gods, you make your idols, but the one true God made you. You give to all your idols, but the one true God gives to you. Psalm 115, 4-8, their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them, and everyone who trusts in them. This contrast of these idols that you make They're not real gods, they cannot give you anything, they cannot serve, they don't care about you, they're of no use to you whatsoever. But the one true God, he gives. He gives life and breath and all things. God is the giver, man is the receiver. God is the creator, man is the creature. And just like that, like it's that simple, Paul's whole argument is challenging the very foundation it's not just a reintroduction of like, yeah, you've got some good gods, let me show you mine. It's this fundamental shift. This, this whole mental model is shifting where instead of having man at the top and i coming up with a lot of interesting gods and debating it and using it as a sport, Paul flips it all over and says, God's at the top and man is at the bottom. God is the one who's over everything and gives everything And man is at the bottom and has nothing to offer. God is at the center of everything and we are just, we're pieces. In the story that God is working to glorify and point to himself. We exist to glorify and illustrate his attributes. And I think you know this. I think we have, again, like this mental ascent to this, but I cannot, like this slips our attention so easily, so quickly, and we need to think about this all the time. Why do we exist? What are we supposed to care about? What are we supposed to really know? How are we to actually live as a life? Like what's, the, what's the foundational, fundamental, plumb line which around which like, we, we orient everything else in our life, that we build our life on top of? It's that God is at the top. God is the king. God made us. We are his creatures. We get this mixed up. It's, it's so simple, but we get this mixed up and we start to think we're pretty important. We start to think we're pretty smart. We start to think that we deserve some, some comfort and some simplicity, and that our life needs to kind of orient around ourselves and it'll be nice if God would help us achieve those things. And maybe if we offered some sacrifices and we did some hard things, then God will give us what we want. And we, we flip that right back over and now we're at the top again. We start to behave this way. Like, look at the things that frustrate you, the things that upset you. Most of the time, they're going to be things that are self-centered, things that are oriented around your own self-worth, your own comfort. It's because we've forgotten who's at the top. We've forgotten who's in control. We've forgotten who's actually running the show and that he's allowed to. He, he, He must, he will do whatever pleases him. And for those who are Christians, he does work for our good. We, we spoke about that a few weeks ago. But at the center of it all is God in his own glory. We need to memorize this. We need to know this like we know our own names. Like what's the most important, fundamental thing in your life to glorify God? The wild thing is, is that you're going to do this whether you accept it, know it, or not. We exist as vessels of the magnificence of God, either willingly as blessed, forgiven children, or as condemned outcasts, as our sins deserve, as frames that showcase the justice of the wrath of God against rebellion. Paul is striking right at the heart of their idolatry and their mental model, or really man and his intelligence, is at the top. Paul is saying, no, no, absolutely not. It's God it's at the top. You know nothing but what you've been given. You have nothing to offer. God is the one who gives. The man is the one who receives. Verse 26, back in Acts 17. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, that perhaps they might grope for him and find him. Though he is not far from each one of us. And Paul is just like walking through every little piece of the Athenians' mental model of how the world works, their worldview of how creation happened and how they got to where they are, and Paul's just walking them through. God is creator. This is how the world works. This is how mankind exists. This is how we got to where we are. God made it all. And it might like it might look at first glance that maybe the Athenians were making too much of being religious and spiritual, but really, the problem is not their their intensity or, or orientation or even their emphasis of religion. It, it, the problem was that, like what's what's the point? The point was their own importance and intelligence. That I'm going to figure out as a as a human who God is and what my obligations to him are, inventing things. It's kind of just, there's all these miscellaneous obligations to appease their own confused conscience. And you see this in the world where people are constantly gr- grappling, like they're trying to grab something, say like, w- where, what do I need to do? Who do I need to appease? What do I, How do I need to behave in order to be happy, in order to be content, in order to have Gotten it right. But rather than bending the knee to the one true God, they are just grappling with religion and philosophies. Their conscience is confused, and so they're constantly trying to figure it out instead of accepting what Paul is saying. You were made, you don't have something to offer, you have something to accept. You need to be forgiven of your sins. verse 28, for in him we live and move and exist. As even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. God cannot be perceived into existence by man. He's the creator of man. We spoke about this. Like how ridiculous to think that you can create God through your own imagination. Or that you as the creature could sufficiently comprehend the reality of who God is. He's either revealed or he's not. You can't invent a being greater than your own intelligence. That's that idea what Paul was speaking about a little bit before that perhaps they might grope for him like that maybe we could figure it out that we seek after God but you'll never know him sufficiently unless he reveals himself to you. And what is that revelation? It's the word of God. Like that's that's all you have. The only way you can really know God that you can know him sufficiently to be saved the way that he is is if he's revealed himself to you and he has through his word. But you go out into Creation, you sit down and just be smart, you're not going to find God. How ridiculous would that be? That you, the creature, could comprehend and understand your own creator. It needs to be divine revelation. Colossians 1, 16-17, For by him all things were created both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and are for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Again, just hammering home, Paul is very strong on this point. The man is not the center. God is the center. All things hold together in God. There there is an invention, but it's not God The invention is man. The invention is the the creation, the creature. Everything else orients around God as being the creator. And we need to know that, again, like we know our own names. So that we, we never, ever, ever forget who's at the top and who's at the bottom. So that we are properly oriented around God as being above all things, holding all things together man and their intellect or experience that's not what creates things that's not what makes things god makes things everything is for him and so again paul just driving home this this turning of the tables on the athenians from intellectual mind games to a much deeper reality and ultimately responsibility this isn't a hobby or a sport it's getting serious but if this is true, if it's not man at the top, but God at the top, there's obligation, there's responsibility. You need to know this God. You need to respond rightly to this God. Don't get it wrong that you can't figure it out on your own. You can't go and sit on a mountaintop and somehow know God. You need to read your Bible. You need to understand the revelation that he's given to us to be able to respond to him correctly. And so after all of this table turning, this orientation of putting God back at the top, Paul then turns to the responsibility. Verse 30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. And why? Because he has fixed a day In which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. The the crux of the issue that Paul is driving at is this consequence that it isn't just mental games. We're not just doing the sports of religion. You name your God, I'll name my God. We'll debate and see which one wins. It's not sports. If God's at the top and there's an obligation that God is the giver and you're the receiver, what has God said? What has he declared? He's declared to all men that all people everywhere, not a single person on planet earth excluded, the one thing you need to do is repent. We're we're not playing games. It's not my God versus your God. Let's get clever here and reason about it. Man is at the very bottom, God is at the very top, and he has said, you must repent. There's no questions, there's no debate, there's no let me think about it. God has required of all men that they would repent. And why? Because he's going to judge the world. Because every single person on planet earth is a sinner. Every single person on planet Earth is in rebellion against God. You're under judgment that gets game over for you. Unless you repent. God has provided by His grace, because He loves you, because He loves you and I, He's offered us an opportunity to repent. He's offered an opportunity through Christ, who died on the cross, to pay for those sins. He's offered an opportunity for us to come underneath that, to be forgiven of our sins. So we don't, we don't have to be judged. We don't have to suffer the consequences for our sin. But that's the only thing. Of all the things you need to know, of all the things you need to do, the only one you really need to know is that God is coming to judge and you need to repent. And this is this issue, it's not a it's not an isolated issue, it's not an issue for their time. This is an issue for our time and, and for all of us. Like it's way too common for religion and spirituality to just kind of become a sport where we forget the point. We all have our favorite books and our favorite preachers, our favorite Christian artists. We've got our pet doctrines and philosophies, and we like to debate these things. We, we forget. We, we turn it into a sport. We kind of forget the whole point that God is coming to judge the earth. We forget about the weight, the obligation to share the gospel, because we've forgotten that God has appointed a day, that there's a day that he's coming to judge the whole world, every person on planet Earth. And that there's only one thing we need to do, and that's repent. We need to declare that message to everyone. Of all the philosophy and all of the arguments and all of the debate and conversations that we have at people, we need to drive to that one thing. You need to repent. Do you see? Do you see God at the top, Him being the judge? And that we have an obligation to repent, that we are we are sinners. And we need to repent, that we could be saved, that we would be removed from that wrath. That would fall on Christ and not on us, that we could be saved. Humans, like we're we're just so good. We love to be distracted. We love to miss the point, and we need to not do that. Okay, we need to really not miss the point, with our friends, with ourselves. Don't be distracted. Don't think there's more important things. The most important thing, have you repented? And so what happens next? Paul has presented the most important thing. God is coming as judge. He's the one true God. He's over everything. You have this obligation to repent or face the consequences Verse 32, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, when they heard that Christ has rose, that, ris- that, that, that rising from the dead, again, really signifying this is the, the one gospel that if Christ is raised, of all the things he said, of all the things he did, that if he rose from the dead, there is this obligation to believe it. When they hear about this resurrection, some began to sneer. And others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. And so Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed. And that, those are those, that's really only just three responses. Some are going to make fun of you. Some are going to sneer. You'll make fun yourself. Don't be that fool, but some of you will. We'll sneer, resurrected from the dead. All right, that's, whatever. And some will say, well, you know, we'll hear you again. Delay. Right? We'll see. And then the third response, acceptance, repentance. They believed and they join Paul. But those, those are the only three responses you can have. Rejection, indecision, or acceptance. And so the obvious question, which one are you? And I know, like you we hit this again week after week after week. But don't let its repetition be lost on you. This is very important to the writer of Acts that you, you keep getting hit with this again and again and again. Have you repented? Have you repented? Have you trusted in Christ? Because you can only be one of three things. Either you're going to sit there and sneer week after week, You'll, you'll sit there and you'll say, "Um, we'll see, maybe next week. Indecision, or you'll accept. And you'll believe. And that, of course, is my prayer for you, that you would stop being indecisive. That you would not sneer. But rather that you would accept and be saved. Because that is, that's the only thing you have to do. You need to repent. But for those who have, for those who have repented, what a presentation, what a a gospel presentation, what evangelism, what an example for us, particularly in in our spheres of influence in the world we live in where people tend to be a bit religious. They tend to struggle with this. They like to debate philosophies. My goodness, I spend a lot of time with people who love to debate philosophies who are unsaved. They may even believe in a, a a god of some sort or that there's someone up there maybe at one point they love to debate these things some of them even love it right they, they love to say like who are you i'm a philosopher i love philosophy i love to read books on philosophy that's who i am so were these athenians and they've, they've got it mixed up we're there at the top and god's just something to pick and choose and our argument to those people to ourselves God's at the top. God made all things. We don't get to sit there in judgment of him. He's the giver. We're the receivers. And he's offered to us forgiveness from our sins. And so we need to repent. And so repent. If you have not, don't sneer. Don't keep waiting till next week or next camp or some special moment. You need to repent. That's the only thing that's left for you to do if you have not. And then, when you do, like Paul, turn that presentation right back around with your friends, with your coworkers, with your neighbors. Bring them to this point. Don't play games, don't play sports, spiritual sports. Do what you got to do to get them to this point. Some will sneer. Some will need another day. Give them that next day. Continue to present the gospel. and By God's grace, may many uh, accept. Let's pray. Dear Father, I thank you for this time in your word. I thank you for the examples that we have from Paul in Acts. of Just this consistency in gospel presentation, this consistency in messaging, that no matter where he went or who he talked to, Jews or Greeks, the message was the same. The mechanics may have been a little different. But it was always the message of repentance. I pray that you would bake that into our minds, that you are at the top. You are the creator. We are your creatures. That we only know you through your word. And we have this precious precious privilege of repentance. This offer of salvation from our sins. I pray that you would open our eyes That we would see that for the gift it is. That we would accept it. That we would not sneer. We would not be indecisive. But that we would accept. That we would believe. That we would repent and be saved. And that for those of us who have, that we would not be shy. That we would not be lethargic in our gospel presentation. but we would be bold. That we would be consistent. That we would improve. And that you would be pleased to spread your gospel to spread salvation to people, that there would be more worshipers who are glorifying your grace and mercy and forgiveness. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.